good morning again, and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. Uh, again, our online service. Uh, we hope our time finds you encouraged and strengthened in the Lord uh, through the Spirit. We're thankful that you can join us uh, via Facebook Live. I especially want to thank uh, the church body, church body at Grace Bible Church, for continuing to reach out and love one another as we have navigated these last few weeks, as we have navigated this, this trial, this difficulty. We're hopeful that, as I said earlier, we're hopeful that we can physically gather again next week. Uh, just be, be in prayer for that. And we'll, again, keep you up to date on those uh, happenings this week as the week progresses. Well, let me pray for our time. And then uh, I'll read from Ephesians 13, or Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for our time of worship and song and in prayer and in reading your scripture. Father, we pray now that you would bless our time uh, preaching, that you would make the words that I say clear, that they would be effective, Lord, not because of my uh, being able to put together a great rhetorical sermon, but that you, Lord, would be superintend these this sermon with your Holy Spirit so that we would the preaching would be with power and authority. Father, we thank you this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our, we're returning again to our we're returning again to our study in Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, we have made our way uh, to this section of Paul's prayer in Ephesians in Ephesians 3 uh, verses 14 through 21. So if you could take your scripture this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. And I'll read from verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his, hope, through his spirit in the inter, inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted, rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, preacher Lyman Beecher had promised to preach for a country minister on exchange. The appointed Sunday came, and it proved to be excessively stormy and cold and downright uncomfortable. It was in the middle of the winter, and uh, snow was piled up along the road, making passage difficult, if not impossible for some. Still, the old preacher pushed his church or his horse through the snowdrifts toward the church to preach at this, in this little country town. When he entered, no one was there. So he went in and he took his seat in the pulpit. Not long after, the door opened and a single man walked in and sat down alone. The time came for the, for the service to begin and there was only this lone individual in the building with the minister. He had to decide if he should go ahead and, and perform the service with no one there except for this solitary soul. 
he didn't deliberate deliberate too long he had a duty to perform and he had or had no right to refuse to do it that was what is was in his mind and heart and according to his conscience so he went ahead with the full service praying singing preaching and the benediction with just this one man to hear it when the service was done he went down from the pulpit to speak to the gentleman but had found that he had left very quickly about 20 years later while tri traveling in ohio beecher the man the preacher came down from the front in a small but pleasant village when the, a gentleman came up and began speaking to him by name by name to which the preacher said beecher said sir i don't know you the man answered i suppose not but we once spent two hours together in a house alone in a storm again the old preacher said i do not recall it sir when was it and the the man said do you remember preaching to a single person about 20 years ago beecher answered why yes yes i do and if you are that man i've been wishing to see you from that day the man answered i am certainly that man and I want you to know that your sermon saved my soul and made a minister of me, and yonder over there is my church. The converts of that sermon are all over Ohio. Now, I love the heart and the attitude of both men. The, the old preacher, the first preacher, was willing to discharge his duty no matter how many folks were in attendance. He fully realized that preaching is not a performance, but a solemn duty and a serious duty for those men who love Christ. The second man clearly recognized how God had used this faithful preacher in his life. He clearly understood the sovereignty of God in saving him, which resulted in converts all over Ohio. Now, I would argue that he understood the idea of predestination. The storm on that Sunday, that faithful Sunday, was no mistake. The fact that the preacher pushed himself through the snow was no mistake. The fact that the preacher went ahead and preached to one man alone was certainly, again, no mistake. Many people owed their salvation to this incredible, almost miraculous chain of events. I would say well, they were a miraculous chain of events because God superintended all of them. This brings us back to our study in Ephesians. The Apostle Paul understood the concept of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty. He also recognized how the kingdom of God grows. And I would argue that the story of those two men are merely a continuation of the story of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Do you recall Jesus' parable of the leaven in Matthew 13:33? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three packs of flour until it was all leavened. We should remember that when the Apostle Paul wrote this epistle, he was, a cha he was in chains for preaching the gospel. And one could argue that he was in chains for preaching the gospel specifically to Gentiles, that Gentiles could come to know Christ, that Gentiles didn't have to become Jews in order to be saved. Now, as Paul writes, he's been in prison for five years. The question is, would his ministry be cut off due to his imprisonment? Would it be prematurely cut short? Therefore, in this letter, this letter to the church at Ephesus, he encourages the church to continue the work that he had started. He fully understood the significance of the church in carrying on his gospel work. 
Now, I should remind you that the city of Ephesus is in a, was in a very strategic location in Asia Minor. It was located strategically as a connector between the churches in the east all the way to Jerusalem to the churches in the west like Rome. The, the Apostle Paul understood that the church at Ephesus needed to remain strong due to its strategic location. It's interesting that it's always been this way with the church. As Christians, we must think strategically in terms of the gospel. For example, you can't miss that the printing press was the hero, the true hero of the Reformation. Martin Luther used the printing press to great advantage to get the Reformation message to the masses. Today, we have social media. Beloved, this is not pragmatism. We must use the means that God provides to preach the gospel to as many as possible. That's why we come to you on an, on an online service today. We want to continue to preach the gospel even though there's difficulty. For us in Gainesville, we also must recognize the strategic nature of the university. Being in a university town, as I've said before, we have 50,000 students every four years here, at, here in Gainesville. Florida grads are spread throughout the entire globe. So over several years and several turnovers of those, those students, we would have, we could literally have people spread all over the globe from this church. The Apostle Paul back in Ephesus recognized the strategic importance of Ephesus. So he realized that the church there must be strong, not just doctrinally strong, but they needed to be unified in one purpose. They needed to fully understand the mystery of the church from its inception in the mind of the Father before the foundation of the world, to its redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, and its security under the seal of the Holy Spirit. They also needed to comprehend the function of the church, the gifts of the Spirit, the equipping of the saints, the diversity and unity of the body. He knew that the very future of the church, universal, could very well depend upon these saints in the local church at Ephesus. Therefore, he intended to encourage and strengthen the church. I believe that, that we'll see this clearly in our current passage. Now, just to remind you, we find ourselves in chapter 3, which begins in verse 1 with the start of a prayer which Paul interrupts from verses 2 to 13. Now, in those verses, 2 to 13, he explains the profound nature of the ministry he's been given to the Gentile church. And in doing this, he describes the mystery of the church. And in doing so, he gives the importance of the church, the deep truths of what God is doing through the church. Put simply, in verse 10, Paul explains that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities and the heavenly realms through the church. Now, brothers and sisters, you may think of the church as a weak gathering of people that pales in comparison to the mighty corporations we see today. Just think of this. Just compare Grace Bible Church to Google. Think of that. Think of the immense immensity of Google and, and how small we are in comparison. But see, God sees the church, beloved, much differently than we do. In God's economy, the church is a demonstration of God's power, the representation of Christ on, on earth. You see, beloved, we are much more powerful than Google. This is Paul's main point in verses 2 through 13. He wants the saints to recognize the significance, the incredible significance of the church. 
And in verse 14, he picks up where he left off in verse 1. He resumes this supercharged prayer for the church. Now, three weeks ago, we began to study this incredible prayer. We saw three characteristics of this power-packed prayer. First, we saw that power-packed prayer has a profound catalyst. Look at verse 14. Paul writes, for this reason. And what he says is he's pointing back to everything he's written up to this point. For Paul, the truths of what God is accomplishing through the church caused him to come to prayer. Paul had taught the profound truths of how God, how and why God saves Christians and how we have the very power of God in us at our disposal. You see, we were dead as Christians. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, yet God had made us, has made us alive in Christ and raised us up and seated him in the heavenlies in Christ. And God has then taken Jews and Gentiles both and made us fellow citizens. Incredibly, he takes this diverse group of people, and according to chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, he is causing us to grow into a holy temple in the Lord. We are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, this, is, this profound truth is what ultimately drives Paul to prayer, that the church would recognize all that Christ has done, all that the Father has done in Christ and through the Spirit. Second, we saw that power Pack prayer has proper character. You see, Paul bows his knee before the Father. In other words, he realizes that we are in complete dependence upon the Father. He bows his knees in worship of the Father, knowing it is the Father alone who cares for us as our loving Heavenly Father. And third, we found that power-packed prayer has a precise center. Notice that Paul bows his knees before the Father. He, this emphasizes the intimacy of our relationship with God. He longs for us to come to him as our loving Heavenly Father. Now, we have arrived at verse 16 as Paul continues his incredible prayer for the saints at Ephesus. In verse 16, Paul prays in two cru crucial ways for the saints at Ephesus and beyond. He prays that the church at Ephesus would be first granted spiritual strength. Look at your text in verse 16. He says this, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now, this is a power-packed sentence. So I want to take some time to unpack the power of Paul's point. Therefore, we need to recognize Paul's progression of thought. And I will give his progression of thought in three points this morning. Now, let me just explain something, do a little housekeeping here before we completely get started. I have two main points of this sermon. I found out yesterday in my study and, and this morning that I was not going to be able to finish both points. So I'm just going to give you the first main point that that he prays that the church at Ephesus would be granted spiritual strength. And under that first point, there'll be three subpoints. And we're looking at the first subpoint this morning. These three subpoints give his progression of prayer. So first, Paul begins by beseeching God to strengthen the Ephesian church according to the riches of his glory. Now, we need to set the context here. In verses 14 and 15, the apostle wanted us to focus mostly on the glory of the one we are to pray to, namely the Father. Now here in verse 16, he begins to give us insight into the content of his prayer for the saints. Notice what he says, that he would grant you. 
Have you ever been pulled aside as a Christian by an older godly or saint for the purpose of imparting wisdom and insight to you? As you may imagine, this happened to Angie and I quite often when we were younger in the faith. We will never forget our pastor and his wife instructing us on parenting. We were, we were incredibly clueless, as, as I've heard people say before. We didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't have an understanding of what we didn't know. We didn't have any knowledge of parenting. Well, we kind of knew that they eat, sleep, and poop, but that's about it. We didn't have the knowledge that we needed, and so they gave it to us. Church, that is the way it is with Christianity. You come to the faith, and you don't know what you don't know. You have some ideas about what life should look like, but you need help and instruction to gain understanding, and you need humility to receive it. This is the heart of Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. He sees a deficiency in the saints at Ephesus. Therefore, he prays that God would grant them according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened. Now, Paul has mentioned the riches of God on several occasions. He mentions them in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 7, in chapter 1, verse 18, in chapter 2, verse 4, and 7, and chapter 3, verse 8, and now in chapter 3, verse 16. So you know that these riches are incredibly important in the mind of Paul. These are true riches in heaven, which moth and rust can't destroy, and thieves can't break in and steal. And here in 3.16, he mentions that these are... These, these are the riches of his glory, that they are beyond our imagination. We can't completely, we can't at all comprehend them. Paul beseeches God to reveal his request on behalf of, or to fulfill, that is, his request on behalf of the Ephesians according to the wealth of his entire being. Beloved, in these times of uncertainty, our hope in these true riches the true riches of God, the true riches of his glory is secure. We can have true hope and true joy in what we have been granted in Christ Jesus. Because, these, because of these riches, we should not fear anymore. But many times we fail to live up to this glorious truth, do we not? Beloved, I can't stress enough what we possess in Christ, what you and I possess in Christ, yet I am fully aware of how short I fall, how well short I fall of living out this truth, how many times I live in fear and anxiety when in reality I've been given everything that I need and far more. We all do, right? That's the reason that Paul adds in the next phrase in verse 16 that we would be granted according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The word translated here for to be strengthened means to be, to be or grow firm or strong. This word is used four times in the New Testament and always in the passive voice, which is significant because this voice reinforces the idea that it is God who gives us this strength. It is not, it doesn't come from within. It's not self-endowed. This goes against our very nature, right? It goes against our flesh. It goes against our you know, even our patriotism here in America, we like to we like to think of ourselves as pulling up ourselves by our own boot, bootstraps, so to speak. We look out for ourselves. We look out for number one, right? But that's not how God works. You see, God wants us to yield to Him. He wants us to understand our weaknesses. He wants us to depend upon Him. I remember when my boys were little, 
and we'd go to the pool, pool. Inevitably, boys being boys, they wanted to go to the deep end. I can remember my, my oldest would bonsai jump in the deep end, whether I was there or not. And my younger one, though, he was a little bit more cautious and he was a little less trusting of me. Now, I'm not advocating that we tempt God, but he does want us to trust him. He wants us to bonsai jump into the deep end and trust that he will keep us from harm. As Spurgeon points out, you will never know God's strength until he has supported you in deep waters. Now, this Greek word is a word that is the word that Luke uses to describe Jesus's development during his childhood and early adult years. In Luke 2.40, he says this, the child, that would be Jesus, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Luke also uses the same word in Luke 1.80. In the example of Jesus, we see what it looks like to be completely yielded to the Father. Jesus lived his entire life in complete submission to the Father, right up to the cross and beyond. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to the Father, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus, Jesus lived his life in complete submission. And going to the cross, he knew what was coming. He knew what was necessary. He knew that the Father's wrath awaited him. And he willingly yielded himself in his humanity to the Father. You see, Paul wants the Ephesian church, and he wants us to be strengthened by God so that we will be more dependent upon him, just like Christ. Now, let me give you a few scriptures that will give, you, that will give examples of this in the lives of some biblical authors and will help us see how this should work in our own lives. In Exodus 15, 2, Moses saying to the Lord, he said this, the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. The, Father, the Lord, that is, is a warrior. The Lord is his name. In, in Psalm 18:1, David writes, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Habakkuk writes in Habakkuk 3.19, he writes this, Yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Again, in Psalm 27, David writes, David exclaims, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? You see, these are examples of men who saw the Lord as their strength, and they lived according to his ways. And amazingly, amazingly, and we'll see the connection here in a moment, these men wrote these verses, who wrote these verses, didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit living within them, dwelling within them. As the title of the Martin Luther hymn says, a mighty fortress is our God. You know, it's interesting that they, the original words written by Luther were even stronger in its original form. The English verse 2 says, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. According to David Mathis, the original verse 2 in German reads, with our, with our power, nothing is accomplished. We are soon very lost. You see how the strength of that song 
uh, really shows that we need God to accomplish anything. We need God's strength in our life. We need his strength to, to make us strong so that we might not fear. Beloved, as Christians, we're not meant to live under our own power and strength, but we are meant to be strengthened by God. So Paul began by asking God to strengthen the saints at Ephesus according to the riches of his glory, according to the riches of his entire being, of the entirety of who he is. Now Paul, secondly, specifically prays that this strengthening would be in the inner man through the power of his Holy Spirit. Look at your text. Paul prays that the saints at Ephesus would be strengthened through his spirit in the inner man. We see here another example of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. I want to remind you that in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul told the church that they were sealed and made secure by the spirit. In chapter 1, verse 17, he says that the spirit gives us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of the Father. In chapter 2, verse 22, he says that it is in the Spirit that we are being built up into a dwelling of God. And in chapter 3, verse 5, he shows that the Spirit has revealed the mystery of the church to the holy apostles and prophets. Here in chapter 3, verse 16, the Spirit acts as the agent which enables believers to be strengthened with his power. In the words of the commentator Harold Honer, he says this, in the writings of Paul and, and the writing of the New Testament or the letter to the Ephesus, this is not new or unusual. For already in the first prayer, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, Paul prayed that believers might know God's power that he directs toward them. Hence, it is through God's Spirit that the believer is to be strengthened with God's ability to act. It is through the Spirit, uh, end quote. It is through the Spirit that we are strengthened in the inner man. He, we see here that Paul refers to, the, to an inner strength as opposed to a physical strength. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said this, Therefore, do not lose heart. But though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. This inner person is renewed day by day while our outer person is perishing. This inner person then is the heart and the mind of the believer, whereas this outer person is the physical body which is wasting away. Here in Ephesians, it is the inner person which is being strengthened by God's power. The, this innermost part of our being is the object of God's working. It is here that God is transforming us from glory to glory. You see, we are nothing without God strengthening us in the inner man. We are completely helpless. Just this past week, one of my dearest friends from California, he, he has suffered some incredibly serious health issues over the past few years, living with much pain and difficulty. He has many reasons to live. His wife, his kids, his grandkids. He's a multi-talented person. He, he's an artist, a theologian and an author, and he's also accomplished at archery. Now, he'd probably kill me for telling you all that, but he said to me during a conversation this past week, he said this, I'm at peace. I'm ready to go see Jesus. You know, I believe him. I believe him. I'm not ready for him to go, and I know that his wife and his children and his grandchildren are not ready for him to go, 
but I believe that he is truly looking forward to that day. I'm, I believe that he's truly looking forward to that day as he deals with the great pain and difficulty of living this life. You see, brothers and sisters, I believe that this man has been strengthened through his spirit in the inner man. As his body has undergone decay, he has grown in his love for Christ and his desire to be with him. So Paul prays that God would grant strength to the believers in Ephesus according to the wealth of, his, of the essence, of his entire essence, with power in the inner person. Now looking back at the progression of Paul's thought, now he wants them to be spiritually strengthened so that Christ would be at home in their hearts. Look at your text in verse 17. Paul says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul prays these things so that Christ might dwell in your hearts. Now, the word translated might dwell has the idea of residing, living, inhabiting, colonizing, settling down. This particular Greek word has an intensifier added to it. The word for dwell is oikeo. Here, Paul uses an intensified version, oikeo, that is. This intensifier brings in the idea of permanence. This can be also be seen in two other instances where Paul uses this word. In Colossians 1.19, he says this of Christ. He says this in Colossians 1.19. <clears throat> for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. In Colossians 2.9, he says, he exclaims, for in, the, in him all the fullness of, of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, in those two verses, you get the, this idea of permanence, this idea that it has always dwelled that way, and it always will be that way. In Ephesians 3, then, it is Christ who dwells in believers. Now, there's a difficulty here that we should work through. We must understand, again, Paul's progression of thought. Put simply, he prays that the saints would be granted to be strengthened so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. Now, you may be asking, if you're astute and if you're listening, I thought Christ started dwelling in the heart of a believer at salvation. Christ is in me, right? This is very true. Let me give you a, a few verses which confirm this truth. In 2, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says this, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ or that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? In Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Again, we see Christ living in the believer. In Colossians 1, excuse me, in 127, it says this, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. So what is that mystery, Paul? What is the riches of that mystery? Which is, he says, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Therefore, here in Ephesians, Paul can't be referencing to Christ indwelling the believer at salvation. What he's saying then, according to what he according to the what he's saying, he wants the saints to be strengthened 
so that Christ may be at home in our hearts. You see, beloved, he wants Christ to be at the very center of your life. He wants Christ to become your reason for living. He becomes the controlling factor in your life. He becomes the controlling factor over your attitudes and your conduct. This is the reason why Paul can say in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's life is centered upon Christ. It is completely centered on, who, on the person of Christ. And so when Christ becomes everything, or becomes everything to us, he, we become then more like Christ. A.W. Tozer says this, A.W. Tozer says this, Holiness, as taught in the scriptures, is not based upon knowledge on our part. Rather, it is based upon the resurrected Christ indwelling us and changing us into his likeness. So we are being then transformed by the indwelling Christ into the image and likeness of him. Now, we can't then miss the Trinitarian nature of Paul's prayer. He prays to the Father that the saints would be strengthened by the Spirit, resulting in Christ being deeply rooted in our lives. You see, the church at Ephesus had Christ dwelling in their hearts of salvation. What they lacked, though, was the outworking of this truth. Paul wants Christ to be so deeply rooted in their lives that every part of their life, every part of their existence is controlled by him. Again, in Galatians 2.19, Paul writes this, in Galatians 2.20, that is, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, so basically what Paul is saying is that he, it is he that no, he, he no longer lives, but it's Christ. He's living completely and centered upon the person of Christ. And all of this occurs by faith. Paul genuinely believes the promises of God, and he lives by them. He lives for the one who shed his blood on the cross for our sins. Beloved, this is where the, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Where do you stand? Do you fully realize that Christ lives in you? What if you had a tracking device that recorded every movement, every word, every thought? What if that was turned into a reality show? Would others who watched that show, would they know that you're sold out for Christ? Would they see that Christ is deeply rooted in your life? That he's the centerpiece of all that you do? Does he control your every action? Does he control your every word? Does he control your every thought? Certainly the answer is no for all of us. But would those watching be sympathetic to your struggle? Or would they gag on your hypocrisy? Brothers and sisters, all these things are known by God in heaven. He knows when he is just an afterthought in your life. He's not going to display his power through those who live as if he doesn't exist. Do you want to live a life that means something? Do you want to rise above the sins that control you? 
the sins for which Christ died on the cross? Some of you wonder why you struggle in the way you do. Could it be that Christ is not at home in your heart? Could it be that you need to be strengthened? That you would be strengthened according to the riches of his glory? So that he would be at home in your heart? Beloved, he can't be at home in your heart with the clutter of sins that you hold on to. Do you want to live a powerful and meaningful life in Christ? Well, Christian, you will always live according to your love of Christ, according to your love for Christ. And you must excel in your love for him. You must join Paul in saying, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Listen to this quote by John Piper. Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross. Cherish it for the treasure that it is. Cleave to it as the highest price for, of every pleasure and the deepest comfort of every pain. For what was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world, end quote. Beloved, life is wasted if we don't live for Christ. Life is wasted if we don't grasp what he's done for us. Life is wasted if we don't proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that others may come to know him. Next week, we'll see that the more central that Christ becomes in our lives, the more we are given to spiritual sensitivity to the love of Christ. And the more that we, more we will experience the fullness of, what, of God's love for us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. Praise you that you are... God in heaven. Lord, as Paul prays for the church at Ephesus, I also pray for Grace Bible Church. I pray, Lord, that this church would be strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit, according to the riches of your glory. Father, I pray that we would grasp all that you've done, all that you've accomplished. Lord, I pray that we would live according to this. Father, I, I know that it, this could become legalistic even. But in reality, if we grasp what is being done, what has been accomplished, is our, the result is that we would truly trust in Christ, that we would give our entire lives, that we would have joy in obeying, that we would have joy in following, that there would be joy in giving our entire lives to Christ making him the, the center of our lives, uh, 
so that he might be deeply rooted in our lives, so that he controls our every, our every action, so that he controls our every thought, so that he controls our every word, so that nothing comes out of our mouths other than what Christ would have us say. We do nothing other than what Christ would have us do. We think thoughts only that Christ would have us think. Father, I pray that we would be strengthened as a church in this very way. Father, I pray that when people walk into our gathering, that they would sense Christ, that they would sense the transcendence of Christ present in our gathering. I pray that you would would grant to us the spiritual strength according to your spirit so that we may accomplish all that you would have us accomplish, so that we would proclaim your gospel, so that we would preach the word of God, so that we would equip men and women to love you and to follow you, so that we would exalt your holy name, so that we would evangelize the lost. Do all the things, Lord, we know that you would have us do. We thank you again in Christ's name. Amen.